Living the Principles. This podcast is hosted by Latricia Smith and Phyllis G. Williams. Living the Principles seeks to expand mindsets, express beliefs, and edify excellence in hopes of building a stronger Black community. Welcome to Living the Principles. Welcome. I am Latricia, and with me today is my co-host, Phyllis. Hey, Phyllis. Hey, Latricia, and hello out there, Difference Makers. Today, we are excited to have a guest, Christopher Everett. Christopher Everett is a creative director, producer, archivist, graphic designer, curator, and keynote speaker who has spoken at several universities and festivals. He has been featured in several well-known publications and media platforms, such as The New Yorker, Documentary Magazine, PBS, Spectrum News, and Film Trooper. His debut feature documentary, Wilmington on Fire, has gathered him several awards, such as Best Local Independent Film from Encore Magazine, Best Documentary Feature at NC Black Film Festival, and Best Director First Feature Documentary from Pan-African Film Festival. Let's welcome and learn from Christopher Everett today. Good evening, Christopher. Good evening. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I was uh, in the hospital (laughs) last week, so I'm just, you know, recovering from that. But other than that, everything is fine. Well, I'm glad you're recovering and out of the hospital. You sound good. Yeah, that's the best I've felt in months, so I'm doing well. Wonderful. Well, let us start out by you telling us some words that you use to describe yourself. Ambitious, hardworking. I think those are the two words that really describe Christopher Everett. I can see that being um, very good word choices. I recall when you and I connected on Facebook years ago that you were going around North Carolina showing your film and you've made all those accolades over the years. Yeah, the film has been going strong uh, for about four years now. You know, we premiered the film uh, Wilmington on Fire, which we were talking about. We premiered it November 2015. And you know, it's going on close to five years um, that we're still screening. We're still doing like two to four screenings a month, not only in North Carolina, but all over the country and also several parts of the world. Wow, that's impressive. All over the world. Yeah. What made you become part of the film industry? I've always been intrigued uh, with the film industry my whole life, ever since I was a kid. You know, I'm from a small town, uh, Laurenburg, North Carolina. Um, It's a small rural town. So growing up in a small town like that, you don't really see those opportunities around yourself. You know, it's not like I grew up in a big city, you know, like Charlotte or Atlanta, New York, where you can at least see those opportunities around you. In a small country town, you know, none of that exists. So all you have is the TV. And also to just dream and, and wish and just try to Put yourself in that position one day to try to, you know, make it in the industry. So that's what I, you know, wanted to do. So I moved to Charlotte, went to school for graphic design because I always had that creative spirit in me. So after I did that, I was trying to get in front of the camera 
It was back in the day, you know, I was, you know, the model type, you know, I was about a hundred pounds lighter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> back then. So I was doing a lot of modeling and started to do some acting, commercial work, stuff like that. So that was my first introduction to the, the film industry somewhat. And then I moved to Atlanta around 2007 and wanted to try to take my acting and modeling to the next step. But things just didn't work out. And then while, while down there, you know, just connecting with folks, actors, filmmakers and stuff like that. I decided I wanted to make my own films and just create my own way and my own destiny. So I started to just learn filmmaking. And that's when I came up with the idea to do Wilmington on Fire. I think that was about 2010. Chris, I grew up in a very small town as well. And I never contributed my creativity to not having a lot of entertainment. Did you have any mentors in Atlanta or Charlotte to help you along the way with your film? Not really. Um, majority of my mentors have came online <laughs> over the years. I always try to tell folks that the internet has really changed the game. Um, a lot of the connections that I made and, and mentors that I've met over the years have just me reaching out online and emailing folks and just letting people know. Uh, one of my mentors is uh, a guy by the name of Pete Chapman. He's a television director. He directs a lot of big time shows, Grey's Anatomy, you know, all the big time TV shows. And he was also my executive producer for Wilmington on Fire as well. And when I reached out to him, I was a fan of his work already. He's done several films. And so I reached out and said, hey, I'm doing this documentary. Um, can you give me some insight? You know, can I send you some footage? Just get some feedback. I'm looking for, you know, a good mentor, but this is my first film. And he hit me back. And we just, you know, developed that relationship out of that. And so folks like that of just meeting folks on the Internet and really believing in me. Um, 30 years ago, I would actually have to move to L.A. or move to New York to get those type of connections. But the Internet has really opened the door to make these connections you know, happen just like that. That's great. And I also saw that Tariq Nasheed, he was also a part of your fan Wilmington on Fire. Yeah. So did you connect with him through this in the same way through the internet? Same thing. You know, it was at the beginning stages of doing Wilmington on Fire. You know, I was a fan of Hidden Colors. That's when the first Hidden Colors that came out. And I was blown away. And I was already familiar with Tariq anyway. And so I sent them a message. Say, hey, Tariq, I'm working on Wilmington on Fire. I'm doing a crowdfunding campaign. Here's some footage. You know, if you can share it or donate, thanks. And he did. He gave me like a couple grand on my campaign. and. Okay. Yeah, and um, he was sharing it. He rocked the Wilmington on Fire t-shirt on his live stream a few times, you know, let people know about it. And I was able to tap into his audience as well, you know, by doing that. So when my film was ready, you know, I was able to get a lot of his um, audience from Hidden Colors to support. And that, that same support still stands to this day. So the internet is really was my way of connecting with folks. And like I said, 20, 30 years ago, I would have to go to L.A. I would have to go to New York to make these connections. But the Internet really made those connections a lot easier. A lot of times we think of the Internet as this bad place, but there is a lot of good. In it's all about Internet. how you use it. It's all about Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My classmate, when I went to graduate school, was also in the film. Inez, Inez Easton. Yes. She was a part of the film as well. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about Wilmington on Fire? We talked about the process, but what about the film? Well, Wilmington on Fire is a documentary that chronicles the 1898 Wilmington Massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Wilmington Massacre is pretty much considered one of the only coup d'etats that have ever happened in the United States. And the coup d'etat is the overthrow, violent overthrow of an existing government. And that's what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, a lot of people you know, are familiar with Tulsa, the Tulsa race riots, um, the Rosewood Massacre. But Wilmington, you know, was before both of those. And it was really one of the first major uh, racial massacres in the United States. Um, and it was right here in North Carolina. But it wasn't just restricted to Wilmington. It was a statewide movement of white supremacy where they did massacres and the, you know, stripping of rights and privileges of African-Americans all over the state, even including in my hometown of Laurenburg as well. So it just wasn't a thing that was restricted to Wilmington. It was a statewide white supremacy movement. Wilmington was the major city in North Carolina back then. So that's why they had to take over Wilmington to make that statement across the whole state of North Carolina. And the film, you know, features, you know, direct descendants like Inez, like Dr. Lewin Manley, Faye Chaplin, who's descend, she's a descendant of one of the wealthiest black men that were in Wilmington back in those days, who was ran out of town. Dr. Manley as well, whose grandfather owned the black newspaper press there. His grandfather was Alex Manley, who was ran out of town as well. And so we have also other historians and activists, and people who have written books and done lots of research on the topic. So it's a combination of a whole lot of folks that contributed to the film. I think there's a couple of things that are really interesting one is the fact that they had this successful coup. And the second, when you said it was statewide, it made me think that the government did absolutely nothing. And I think that's what allowed Tulsa and Rosewood and the Red Summer of 1919 yes. to happen because there was nothing done to these people who committed this atrocity. So it led other people to believe, hey, we can do the same thing. And right. so they did. Right. And, and that's what happened. And that's exactly what happened, especially in Wilmington and all over um, the country. This massive racial terror on African-Americans all over. But particularly in Wilmington, the state government didn't do anything because they were involved in it. And also the federal government had involvement military-wise as well because the folks that were actually doing the shooting and killing were, were military soldiers. So that's federal government, you know, at fault as well. And also the, the president at the time, President McKinley, people were all in his ear about not doing anything because they feared that we'll have another, a second civil war in our hands. If the federal government comes back in and tell these certain states you can't do this to African-Americans. So a lot of folks were scared to do anything. And also they knew that, okay, you're, you're killing black people, so who cares? Exactly. One of the other things that I thought was interesting about the film is how it pointed out that Mr. Manley, he had written something in his newspaper. I guess they, there was an accusation made about a black man raping a white woman, and he came back with something and 
it was sometime after that that they destroyed this. I noticed the exact same thing happened with Tulsa and Rosewood. There was a black man accused of doing something to a white woman. And then the next thing you know, mass destruction happened. I know in Wilmington, it was also about the politics because they didn't like the fact that black people were so heavily involved in politics. But it's just amazing the lengths that people would go to terrorize a group of people. Right. And, that, and, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make the film really just not to give us a history lesson, but to also learn from our mistakes and learn how white supremacy will evolve. You know what I'm saying? So we can also look for the signs now, you know, because we see a lot of these similarities and certain things still happening today. And that's why I wanted to make the film. You know, we got to learn from our past, you know, in order to, to make a better future. That was one of the reasons why I made Wilmington Empire. Did you get any pushback from any of the descendants of the races and the violent people who were the cause of this? Uh, no, not at all. The thing is, um, you know, the state of North Carolina, they actually came out with a, an official state report back in 2006. We actually have the lady, the Ray Umfleet, who was over there and wrote that. Back then, 2006, 2008, you know, it was a big deal about 1898. And they were really pushing a lot of things, trying to get some bills passed through the General Assembly. You know, it was a hot topic for over two years. Uh, finally, you know, this stuff is coming out, trying to make it mainstream. News outlets and media outlets were interviewing, highlighting some of those descendants of the people who did this stuff. And so they all knew what happened. You know, a lot of them didn't find out until they got older. But that really was when. They were kind of like on Front Street, finally. But since my film's been out, I haven't really gotten any pushback at all because all the stuff is true. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> been a state report, you know, since 2006, and it's been in books before that. So everyone knows, you know, we just kind of took it to the next level, you know, with Wilmington Fire, but everyone knows. And the thing is, I think there really hasn't been no pushback because, you know, nothing's really, nothing really <laughs> is happening, you know what I'm saying, to them. You know, so they're kind of like, you know, oh, well, you know, it wasn't me. You know, said so that was my great grandfather. You know, I'm not like that. So let's move on. And that's so funny. The whole thing about moving on. People don't think about the long term effects of these type of atrocities. And I heard you asking in the film some of the descendants whether or not they felt reparations would be appropriate. What are your thoughts about reparations? Um, I totally agree. We definitely need reparations, not just for the Wilmington Massacre, but for all the atrocities um, that happened to Black folks here in America, from slavery all, all the way up. I think a lot of that, this stuff has hindered our progress a lot economically, politically, and, and socially, You know, especially the economic aspect of everything. And I think to repair the damage, you know, it takes, it takes money. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, just like with anything, you know, that happens, you know, it takes money to repair the damage. It takes financing to repair that damage. You see now that the conversation is, is starting to really happen because, you know, years ago, you know, you talk about reparations, it was kind of like whatever. But now it's starting to really pick up some steam and momentum. And I think it's because of films like Wilmington on Fire and other people, activists and scholars and other people and other folks like that 
who are doing these type of things um, to really educate folks about what reparation is and, and, and what it's all about. And I know last summer, you know, they had the um, congressional hearing on reparations in Washington, D.C., and Wilmington on Fire was actually mentioned during that by uh, Dr. Julianne Malveaux. She actually watched the film and loved it. And so I didn't know she was going to actually mention the film, you know, during the whole congressional hearing on reparations. But she did. You know, she talked about the Wilmington Massacre, Tulsa, and she urged everyone to watch Wilmington on Fire as well. So, you know, the film, you know, I'm not Tyler Perry or nothing. I don't have big money and, you know, I'm not connected with Oprah and none of these folks like that. You know, but the film is getting out there. And it's because of folks like yourself, uh, folks, you know, on a grassroots level support the film, who spread the word about it. And also what we're doing is continuing to create those conversations and keep pushing the film out there. And Chris, when I heard about Wilmington Massacre, I was a teacher yeah, and I had never heard of it. And I was in Florida and this guy mentioned the Wilmington Massacre because I told him I was from Jacksonville. And he said, oh, are you familiar with the Wilmington Massacre? I said, that must be Wilmington, Delaware, because I don't think that happened in Wilmington in North Carolina. He's like, no, it happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. So as you stated earlier, learning from our mistakes is very important. But I also feel that the schools should be responsible for teaching some of these things. Are you speaking at schools? or I know you're speaking at universities, but are you also speaking at grade schools, K through 12? And if so, what has been your experience with that? Yeah, we've done some things at some schools. um, But again, you know, you can't, you know, you can't hit a lot of these schools up. You know, you have to pretty much be invited. You know, some schools, like a lot of the teachers want to teach this stuff, but the principals and other factors don't want it. Really, it's finding, you know, those educators who have that support base within the school system. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to find quite a few folks who, who are actually already teaching this stuff and want it and want to take it to the next level of bringing the film in. They teach it for a while and they show the film. Then I'll come in and talk a little bit about it with the students. And they're so engaged. And because they already learned about it from the teacher, then they see it in video form, you know, as well. So you see a lot of teachers, especially in North Carolina, are starting to teach this history now. But, you know, it's not publicized a lot, but you're seeing quite a few educators who are taking the initiative to start incorporating it into their curriculum somewhat. But again, you know, the school system is tough to tackle. I know back in 2008, they actually, this was a part of those bills I was telling you about that the General Assembly was trying to pass through. And one of those bills was to put this in the curriculum, K through 12, in North Carolina school system. They couldn't get it passed. And we had a majority Democratic legislature. Wow. I would like to say that I'm surprised, but actually I'm not. People don't like speaking about race because one, it makes them feel uncomfortable and makes some people feel guilty. But I do know there's a homeschool community here in Fayetteville, so I'm going to try to get you connected to them as well. That's what it's going to take. People that's, you know, that's doing things outside of the box. We're going to have to do more of that, whether it's our church groups or other organizations we got. You know what I'm saying? It's like we, we, we have to, you know, we also have to take the initiative ourselves, teaching our own history. You know, we're teaching our children also. It's going to take a while, you know, for the school system to get in line, <laughs> you know. So until then, you know, we have to do what we have to do. A lot of people don't see or feel the need to talk about history. 
why are we talking about 1898? Why are we talking about 1619? Why are we talking about all of this old history? Tell us, Chris, why are we talking about it? Because a lot of that old history, it still affects our lives today. Um, that's the reason why, you know, we talk about it, you know, as African-Americans, because that history of slavery, of Jim Crow segregation, of racial terror still affects our lives today. You know what I'm saying? A lot, you know, a lot of us as African-Americans, we wouldn't be in certain situations right now if these things never happened or if these things were ever corrected. You know, and the, the wrongs were never corrected. That's why we're in certain situations, what we're in now. And that's why it's very important to talk about it, because we got to go to the root of the problem in order to solve the problem. And a lot of times people don't want to talk about that because they know if we begin to see what the problem really is, you know, then we'll be able to fix it. That's what I say. Right. What is it that you want audiences to get from? this documentary? I want, you know, audience to really realize what happened. Also, just what Wilmington could have been, um, especially folks here in North Carolina, really what Wilmington could have been for the state as well, because I don't think white folks really understand that. When you hurt the African-American community, you're hurting the community as a whole as well. You know what I'm saying? Because you doing this to this certain demographic, it hurt the city overall as well. The city never really grew to its full potential. And you see that to this day. Wilmington is, it's like it stayed a certain size, you know, after the 1898 massacre. And the city really hasn't grown and never really reached its full potential. And it's because of racism, white supremacy. And those are the kind of things that I want people to realize and how we can really as African-Americans, let's go back to what we used to do, getting more involved in politics, be about starting businesses, you know, more about entrepreneurship and being together as a people as well. And those are the things I really wanted people to see. The things we accomplished coming out of slavery, you know, was remarkable. And especially right here in North Carolina and especially in Wilmington, North Carolina as well. So it was really to show us in that type of light of what we could accomplish, you know what I'm saying, until the 1898 massacre happened. But, you know, what happened, we still have to fight for what we need and what we're owed. But we also need to look at it as, let's try to take some of those things that worked for us back then, you know, get more politically involved, be more about our interests as Black people, period, instead of trying to be inclusive for everybody. You know, we need to take care of our house first. And then we can help everybody else, <laughs> you know. So those are the type of things that I really want people to get out of this. That's awesome. I was so inspired by the film. I thought it was a great film. And I was really inspired by this community who was just like, what, 30-something 30, right. 30 years removed from slavery. And they were thriving like that. And if they could do it, then we could do it now. And that's what inspired me to keep going, because I ran into a lot of potholes while making the film. You know, I'm not a rich person, you know, so money plays a factor in trying to make these films. And so, but I always, that was always in the back of my mind, of my ancestors, the people that came before me, and the people that I'm doing this film about in Wilmington back then. You know, they were able to do it, you know, with, with nothing. 
So I, I can figure it out. <laughs> you know, I'll make a way. Um, I just got to take my time, but it, everything will work out. And it did. Yep. Just keep on pushing. I do think it's very important that we are unapologetically black. And you spoke of that. And I agree with everything else you said about politics and being entrepreneurs. Where can um, we buy Wilmington on Fire and where can listeners find you? Oh, yeah. Well, you can get Wilmington on Fire at WilmingtonOnFire.com. WilmingtonOnFire.com. You can purchase the DVD or you can buy the digital download right there at WilmingtonOnFire.com. You can also follow the film on social media as well. Facebook, Wilmington on Fire. Twitter, Wilmington1898. And Instagram, Wilmington on Fire. And also, if you want to follow me on Instagram, Speller Street Films. Speller Street Films on Instagram. You can follow me as well. And, you know, the support for the film really is how we keep the film going. You know, a lot of times people think, ah, you know, he's making money. No, I don't make no money off the film. And I have a regular day, nine to five job that I make my, my income. You know, the money is used to really keep promoting the film. That's how I've been able to keep the film alive for going on five years, is to keep funneling the money back into it, promotion, the marketing, traveling to different places, keeping the film alive and keeping that conversation going. So when people support the film, they support that. And also to other film projects as well. We're doing a martial arts documentary right now by 80% Done. It's called Grandmaster. And it's about the first black professional karate champion in the United States. We're almost about, we're almost done filming, actually. We've been filming that for two years. So that's another great story that really hasn't been told. I'm also working on a documentary about Abiyu Don Awiele of The Last Poets as well. I partnered with a production company in New York. That's about 80% done. So those are where, you know, where the money goes is to continue to create these type of stories and to promote these type of stories as well that aren't talked about. And it's to promote our history and our culture. I thank you so much for giving back to the community. And it makes me think of an often quoted African proverb, until the lion learns to speak, the hunter will always be the victor. So you're using your voice for a really great reason. I appreciate you taking out your time with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Christopher gave us so many nuggets. That was a powerful interview. What's the principal challenge based on our conversation today? Principal challenge. Live them out. The principal challenge based on our conversation today is to watch Wilmington on fire. You heard where to get it from. Now go get it. WilmingtonOnFire.com For our next section, open your heart, ears, and mind as we spread the good news. Not rumors, not rubbish. Living the principles, we spread the good news. Good news point number one. Shakira pay tribute to the Afro-Colombians at the Super Bowl. She not only had Afro-Latina dancers, but she sung Waka Waka, which is related to Africa and praises Africa. She also did a dance called the Champeta, which originated among African descendants of Colombia. 
We often speak of the Black diaspora. I love seeing it in action at halftime. We spoke of a film today, but there's other good news about films. Director Marwari Dreama wins award for feature debut Residue at the Slam Dance Film Festival. The movie Residue is a film that focuses on a character named Demetrius, who returns to his barely recognized neighborhood due to gentrification. His friend is missing, but since he's a stranger, no one trusts him. This is a great tale of not fitting in to both worlds. Residue is the name of that film. Thirdly, we have important good news about Dr. Martin Luther King. To celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, his grandchild and children read parts of his The American Dream speech, which was the foundation for I Have a Dream speech. This was aired on CBS and is a great use of the media to show legacy. His granddaughter is also an activist for peace. That's the good news for today, Latricia. And since we are in February and Christopher spoke of being unapologetically black, please go to livingtheprinciples365.com to shop for your black apparel. Because just like Christopher needs to fund his film, we need to fund our podcast. I know it seems that I'm out here trying to get some gravy, but that doesn't mean we don't have a soul snack. Latricia, what is the soul snack for today? Our soul snack for today comes from a Swahili proverb, and it says, life can be understood backwards, but we live it forward. That's our show for today. Until next time, expand your minds and impact your communities. Thanks for listening to Living the Principles podcast. Be sure to visit us at livingtheprinciples365.com to access the show and join in on the conversations.